Uh, when it was shearing time, my dad did all the shearing. We'd corral the sheep, and one of the boys would bring him a sheep. It's pretty easy to move sheep around. You just grab them uh, right at the base of their throat, grab a handful of wool, and right on top of their hindquarters, and you just sort of steer them. Their legs are trying to get away from you, and they just run wherever you want them to go like that. You kind of uh, direct them along. So one of the boys would run a sheep into the barn. Dad would start by setting her up on her hindquarters, and he'd take big, long swipes uh, with the clippers in his right hand, at the same time kind of stretching out her, uh, her skin with the left hand so she doesn't get clipped and he can get a close cut. And then he kind of rolled it around as he went until the whole fleece was off her. Uh, then went out, that sheep went out and then came another. The belly wool gets thrown off to one side and then the fleece is laid out flat and the tags uh, were pulled off. The tags are, are, that's wool with some manure stuck on it. So you pull off all the tags and any stained wool and... Uh, then the fleece is rolled up and, and tied with a brown paper tie. The paper tie, it's made out of the same kind of paper that they make uh, brown paper bags out of, like at a grocery store, except it's just sort of twisted into a long cord. And you tie the, a fleece like a package, so you tie it one way, and then with loose ends you turn it at a 90-degree angle and tie it another way. And then you uh, throw it into the wool sack. Now, if you haven't seen that one of those before, a wool sack is like the world's biggest gunny sack. It's a a great big burlap bag. They're about eight foot long or so. Uh, I don't remember exactly. And uh, it was hung up on, on a, a, a big frame with the mouth open. So when you had the fleece tied up, you just toss it up and it'd fall into the sack. And when the sack started getting full, then one of my brothers would climb up and jump up and down in it to pack down those fleeces tighter. And once it got full, you, you'd sew the sack shut and haul it aside and then hang up another sack. The tags and the belly wool, they get put in a separate sack. Later in the year, we'd haul our wool sacks and sell them at the wool pool. For us, the wool pool is another county about 30 miles away. But that's a story for another day. Anyway, one of my brothers uh, remember, told me that he remembers feeling sorry for the sheep uh, that were sheared because the way we had it set it up, they'd be kicked out back in the same corral as unshorn sheep. And as soon as they put them back in with the unshorn sheep, they'd get attacked by the flock because they didn't look the same as the others. So he'd try to grab the most aggressive ones and make them next to be sheared. Anyway, the sheep that were sheared would get attacked by the unshorn bunch because they didn't look the same as the others. Everybody here can probably relate to that in some fashion. Guess what? He's the good shepherd. And we're his sheep. And if we're living godly lives in Christ Jesus, we should expect the same kind of treatment. I'd like everybody to listen very carefully to inspired, inerrant word of God that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. In all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Everyone hear that? All that will love godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. God didn't tell us that some of us that are living godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution or that many of us that are living godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution. But all, 
that are living godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We have God's word on it. If we're serious about our faith, if we're serious about following the teaching of the church, if we're serious about keeping the commandments, if we're serious about living in a state of grace, we're going to be different. And in some aspects, a lot different than the majority of the people around us. If we're living godly in Christ Jesus, we're going to stick out. Why? Because, as is true in every culture, the majority of our neighbors live according to the norms of the popular culture. And in this present darkness, the norms of the popular culture are not even close to the norms of the gospel. But I don't think you need me to tell you that. So let's spend a few minutes this morning speaking about one very important aspect of a godly life in Christ Jesus, which will frequently provoke those who live in accord with the norms of the popular culture, and that is practicing the virtue of modesty. This virtue is so important that inspired in the word of God says in Philippians 4, 5, quote, let your modesty be known to all men. Close quote, the Holy Spirit. Let your modesty be known to all men. Okay, fine. So our modesty should be known to all men. But what is it? Modesty is the virtue that gives a man the ability to be moderate in all things, to govern and dominate his passions, especially his desires for pleasure. It's a moral virtue that guards purity by giving man the power to practice due measure in his actions and in his dress. So modesty is a moral virtue which guards purity, and the Holy Spirit commands us to let our modesty be known to all men. The relationship between modesty and purity is easy to understand. Pope Pius XII explained it by stating that modesty is a natural bulwark of purity. Now, a bulwark is a defensive wall, so modesty is a natural wall of defense for purity. Modesty shields purity. Since modesty shields purity, when modesty is violated, that means there's a breach in the walls, which means there's an open pathway for impurity. So it's easy to see how absolutely essential this virtue is. In other words, if we want to be pure, which is another way of saying if we want to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, if we want to be saved, we must be modest. We must practice due measure in our actions and our dress. Okay, Father, but why does a violation of modesty open the way to impurity? It's a good question. Excepting, of course, Blessed Virgin Mary, we all have this passionate desire to enjoy pleasurable things outside the rule of right reason. We all have this condition which inclines us towards sin. In other words, we all suffer from concupiscence. For that, we can thank Adam. Now, on top of that, our passions are strongly inclined towards the desire to procreate. In purity, the virtue of chastity, protects that great creative power. But as St. Alphonsus, he's the doctor of moral theology, teaches, St. Alphonsus teaches this, 
As you listen to this, by the way, keep in mind that he's writing over 200 years ago, well before the mass media, the Internet, and smartphones. St. Alphonsus teaches, quote, Since sins against purity are the most frequent and most abundant confessional matters, and on account of which the greater number of souls fall into hell, indeed, I do not hesitate to assert that all those who are damned are damned on account of this one vice of impurity, or at least not without it. Close quote, St. Alphonsus, Bishop and Doctor of the Church. Those are serious words indeed. But thanks be to the good Lord, we have another virtue to protect us, that great virtue of modesty which moderates our acts precisely so they don't tempt anyone to sins of lust. Modesty moderates our exterior acts and dress so they won't tempt anyone to sins of lust. In other words, modesty moderates our external acts and dress so that we don't scandalize anyone. Now, it's important to realize that when we use the word scandalize in Catholic moral teaching, it doesn't mean being shocked. Being scandalized means being tempted into sin by the actions of another. Being scandalized means being tempted into sins by the action of another. Actions which endanger the spiritual life of another are acts of scandal. That's what scandal is. Now, there are two kinds of scandal. There's deliberate scandal. That's, for example, when someone deliberately or knowingly acts or dresses in an immodest fashion. That's deliberate scandal. There's also unintentional scandal. That's when someone, out of ignorance, acts or dresses in an immodest fashion. Let's take a quick look at both cases. Deliberate scandal. The redemptist moral theologian, Father Sattler, has a great discussion of this. Quote, If a person actually desires to stir lust in another, his intention is evil, and he commits a mortal sin, even if he does not succeed in his purpose. Close quote. Okay, so we can see, all see that clearly, that to deliberately try to commit others, to deliberately try to tempt others to commit serious sins, whether or not it actually works, is in itself mortally sinful. So that's deliberate scandal. Now let's consider unintentional scandal. That's the condition when someone acts or dresses in a modest fashion out of ignorance. Father Sattler, quote, Granting there is no evil purpose in our actions, we still have obligations to our neighbor. We may not do what we please if what we do is a danger to the salvation of our neighbor's soul. Acts which endanger the spiritual life of another are acts of scandal and are forbidden because love for our neighbor demands that we do not induce or help him to sin. This principle especially concerns modesty and dress and those actions which are done in company with others. Close quote. We have obligations to our neighbor. How this needs to be burnt into our minds. We have obligations to our neighbor. We may not do what we please if what we do is a danger to 
to our neighbor's souls. We have obligations to our neighbor. Acts which endanger the spiritual life of another are acts of scandal and forbidden because love for our neighbor demands that we do not induce or help him to sin. And this principle it concerns especially modesty and dress, those actions which are done in company with others. Quick review. Deliberate scandal occurs when somebody deliberately or knowingly acts or dresses in an immodest fashion in order to stir up lust in others. It's mortally sinful whether or not he's successful. Unintentional scandal occurs when someone, out of ignorance, acts or dresses in an immodest fashion. Now that we've taken a quick look at the two ways in which people offer scandal, deliberately and unintentionally, let's take a quick look at the people being scandalized. Now, there are three possible categories of people to consider when speaking of people being scandalized by immodesty. Father Sattler. The first group compromises those who are looking for opportunities to sin. No one has any obligation to avoid giving opportunities to such people. They must solve their own problems. The second group is composed of ordinary people who try to live a chaste life. Divine charity obliges us to avoid giving them occasions for sin. Therefore, any action which would bring some well-intentioned person to sin or to grave danger of sin would itself be sinful. The last group includes those who, however well-intentioned, are weak regarding their observance of the Sixth Commandment. This group is composed of children, adolescents, and any others who are known to be especially liable to sin. Extraordinary precautions must be taken with this group. Close quote. So the three categories of men to be considered when worrying about being scandalized by immodesty are those looking to sin, ordinary folks trying to live chaste lives, and those who are weak. Again, those looking for sin, looking for the occasion, the ordinary folks trying to live chastely, and our weak neighbors, especially children and adolescents. We don't have to worry about those looking to sin. They're on their own. But we are obliged before God to avoid any immodesty which give an ordinary man an occasion of sin. We're obliged to use extraordinary precautions in this regard around children, adolescents, and the weak. The Good Shepherd has some very sobering words in this regard. Quote, He that shall scandalize one of these little ones that believe in me, who are better for him, that a millstone be should hang around his neck, and he should be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to that man by whom the scandal cometh. Woe to that man by whom the scandal cometh. He that shall scandalize one of these little ones, it were better for him that a millstone should be hanged around his neck, that he should be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now keep in mind here that there's a symmetry between the person committing scandal and the person being scandalized. If someone is dressing in an immodest fashion, they're guilty for offering in forbidden fruit. But the people who are scandalized, they're guilty for taking the forbidden fruit, okay? The person offering is guilty for offering. Whether or not he gets any takers, the people taking it 
are guilty for taking it. Let's review. We've seen, because we're all members of a fallen race, except for Our Lady, we all suffer from concupiscence. And we've seen that because of concupiscence, men are strongly inclined towards sins of impurity, which fills hells with souls. We've seen that modesty is the virtue that protects us from sins of impurity. And we realize that because we have obligations to our neighbor, we may not do what we please if what we do is a danger to the salvation of our neighbor's soul. We've seen that acts which endanger the spiritual life of another are acts of scandal, and that God forbids them because love for our neighbor demands that we do not induce or help him to sin. We've seen we have to be cautious around ordinary people trying to live chastely and extraordinarily cautious around the weak, especially children and adolescents. And we've seen this applies to modesty and dress, to those actions which are done in company with others. Now let's get practical. Because of time, we'll only consider two applications. First application, actions which are done in company with others. We'll quickly review a point that we're all hopefully familiar with. In regards to actions which are done in the company of others, Pope Alexander VII condemned as a moral error the idea that it is only venially sinful for the unmarried to kiss for the sensual pleasure rising from a kiss, even if there's no danger of further consent or of going even farther. It is condemned to say that it is only a venial sin for the unmarried to deliberately kiss for the pleasure of kissing. So what does that mean? St. Alphonsus explains, quote, This means that every time someone, with sufficient reflection and full consent of the will, delights in carnal or sensual pleasure associated with someone to whom he is not married, he commits a mortal sin. This is not only true with kisses, but also with respect to other touches performed for carnal pleasure. The reason is that any delight taken in carnal pleasure, that is to say any delight taken in stirring up the appetite surrounding the creative power, is a movement towards the marital act. Close quote, the doctor of moral theology of the universal church. So here's the point. For the unmarried, passionate kissing is morally sinful. Why? Because it's passionate. The unmarried do not have the right to those passions. They do not have the right to deliberately stir up those passions in themselves or in anyone else, whether by thought, word, or deed. Those passions, those delights, those pleasures are reserved strictly for the married, not for anyone else. Once we understand that, we don't need to go through this big, long laundry list to explain which particular behaviors are wrong. For the unmarried, passionate kissing is morally sinful because the unmarried do not have the right to deliberately stir up those passions in themselves or any others, whether by kissing or any other deed, thought, or word. Bottom line, that little peck on the cheek or that little peck on the lips, that real chaste kiss, that's the kind of kissing that the unmarried can do. And that's all. Okay. Second application, modesty and dress. Before we touch on that, I want to make two points. First, what I'm going to say is nothing personal. We're on this together. We have obligations to our neighbor. And my obligation to you is to explain to you these things. 
Acts which endanger the spiritual life of another are acts of scandal, and God forbids them because the love of our neighbor demands we do not induce or help him to sin. So if anyone's been offering scandal, he doesn't repent and reform, there's something far worse than a millstone in the future. Second, some people seem to think that the church has a double standard, one for men and another for women. But that's not true at all. As Father Sattler points out, because the differences between the sexes, some difficulties are stronger in one sex than in the other, and so they must be dealt with accordingly. Men typically have more difficulty with purity itself, with modesty of the eyes and touch. So that's where men must be more careful. For example, viewing bad websites is by and large a male problem. Women must give more attention to the whole field of modesty and be more considerate of the weakness of others. The difficulties come out about even in terms of sin. We all ought to be pretty familiar with the story anyway. The names have changed. But one sex is typically guilty of offering forbidden fruit. One sex is typically guilty of taking it. Bottom line is the Good Shepherd calls all Catholic men and all Catholic women to a sense of loving responsibility for one another and to show that by our practices of virtue and purity and modesty. We have obligations to our neighbor. Pope Pius XII, please listen carefully. We have to prefer the spiritual welfare of our neighbor our bodily comforts. If a certain kind of dress constitutes a grave and proximate occasion of sin and endangers the salvation of your soul and others, it is your duty to give it up. O Christian mothers, if you knew what a future of anxieties and perils, of ill-guarded shame that you prepare for your sons and daughters, imprudently getting them accustomed to live scantily dressed and make them lose the sense of modesty, you would be ashamed of yourselves and you would dread the harm you are causing to yourselves and the harm which you are causing these children whom heaven has entrusted to you to be brought up as Christians. No matter how broad and changeable styles may be, there is always an absolute norm to be kept. Style must never be a proximate occasion of sin. Immodesty in fashion depends on the cut of the garment. The garment must not be evaluated according to the estimation of a decadent or already corrupt society. Close quote, Pope Pius XII, Vicar of Christ. Now, during the reign of Pius XI, the Holy See had issued norms for modesty and dress. These are timeless standards for women's clothing. They're independent of particular fashion trends. In other words, these are the absolute norms referred to by Pope Pius XII. Number one, it must not be cut deeper than two fingers' breadth under the pit of the throat. Number two, quarter-length sleeves are tolerated, In other words, no sleeveless blouses or bare shoulders. Number three, it must reach beyond the knees when seated. Number four, 
transparent materials are improper. Now, notice what these rules are intended to do. They are intended to prevent a woman from being an occasion of sin to others. The absolute norms are designed to ensure that the body is concealed according to the measure of right reason. I point out something before you go any farther. We practice what we preach. And this is black. So there's no pity when it comes to, well, it's real hot, Father. Yes, I know. Anyway, back to this. What's the Holy Spirit say? Let your modesty be known to all men. Now, modesty automatically forbids tight clothing, tight sweaters, tight blouses, tight skirts, tight pants, tight shorts. They're all immodest. They're all immodest. Let your modesty be known to all men. Modesty does not mean that girls aren't supposed to be colorful and pretty. Of course they are. Our lady is beautiful. She wore bright blue and bright red. Y'all are the flowers that God has put in society. You're supposed to be colorful and pretty, but it has to be a fair fight. Okay? Modesty doesn't mean that the clothes a woman wears can't fit her form. Of course they can. They just can't be tight. It has to be a fair fight, ladies. The whole notion of the church's rules is just to ensure that it's a fair fight. That great doctor of the church, St. Ambrose, summarizes the basic idea. How delightful it is to do good to others by your appearance. How delightful it is to do good to others by your appearance. Before we go on, let me make a parenthetical remark about tight clothing. In my files, I have summary of a research study which showed that endometriosis is extremely rare in populations of women who wear traditional clothing, or in other words, loose clothing. The findings suggest that tight clothing may cause retrograde menses, which results in endometriosis. Okay, back to the sermon. Well, Blessed Jacinta, one of the visionaries of Fatima, was dying in the hospital. She grew very sad because of the worldliness of the visiting women who had come in all decked out in these fashionable clothes, often with very low-cut dresses. What is it all for? Blessed Jacinta asked if they only knew what eternity is. What is it all for? If they only knew what eternity is. Low-cut blouses, short skirts, short shorts, worldly fashions. What is it all for? Now, just in case someone here is getting bent out of shape by all this, Relax and ask yourself one question. Do I actually think that people should run around naked? No. If you can answer no to that, then we agree on the principle. We're just haggling over the application. And if we're haggling over the application, stop and think of what that means. That means, on the one hand, we have God's standard, and on the other hand, We have someone else's. Remember, Our Lady warned us through Blessed Jacinta, and I quote Our Lady, certain fashions will be introduced which will offend our Divine Lord very much. Those who serve God ought not to follow these fashions. The Church has no fashions. 
Our Lord is always the same. Close quote, Our Lady. Pius XII. We have to prefer the spiritual welfare of our neighbor to our own bodily comforts. If a certain kind of dress constitutes a grave and proximate occasion of sin and endangers the salvation of your soul and others, it is your duty to give it up. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. If you have clothing that is dangerous to your soul and others, it is your duty to give it up. Get rid of it. Get out the scissors, make the dust rags, whatever, but get rid of it. Let's review. We've seen the sheep that were sheared get attacked because they didn't look the same as the unshorn bunch. If we're going to be faithful to the Good Shepherd, given what currently passes for acceptable behavior for the unmarried, we sure are going to act different. And given what passes for acceptable behavior for fashions and dress, we sure are going to look a lot different than a lot of the folks around us. The rules for acceptable behavior for the unmarried are really easy to remember. Passionate kissing is morally sinful because the unmarried do not have the right to deliberately stir up those passions in themselves or in any others, whether by kissing or by any other deed, thought, or word. The absolute norms for women's clothing are really easy to remember. must not be cut deeper than two fingers' breadth under the pit of the throat. Quarter-length sleeves are tolerated. In other words, no sleeveless blouses or bare shoulders. must reach beyond the knees when seated. Transparent materials and tight clothing are improper. It doesn't matter what everyone else is doing. If they want to be saved, Catholic guys have to watch what they're looking at. Catholic girls have to watch how they look. That is radically different from the surrounding culture. So we shouldn't be particularly surprised if we catch some flack over all this. But all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So we've seen that the sheep that were sheared would get attacked because they didn't look the same as the unshorn bunch. We've seen if we're going to be faithful to the Good Shepherd, we will look different. So we wouldn't be too surprised if we get the same kind of treatment. That being said, let each of us be very careful to make sure when folks join us here, who may look different, probably because they're not yet aware of the church's guidelines, let's make very sure that we make them feel welcome and that we don't bunch up like a band of unshorn sheep and attack them. On that note, let's close with inspired words taken from the fifth chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Really ask the Holy Spirit to take them to heart. The Word of God. Once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God.